Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome to another episode of TV I Say with me, Ashley Ray. And today, I'm talking to someone everyone has been waiting for me to talk to, Beth Karras. We are getting into Beth Karras. If you are not uh, my mom or someone who is obsessed with court TV, uh, you might not know Beth Karras is the legal uh, brilliant mind behind my favorite documentary of the year, The Curious Case of Natalia Grace. You all were like, come on, we got to get to the bottom of this. We have so many questions about this documentary. So I had to bring Beth on because Beth is the expert. We get into all of it. And yes, and we get into the part two. Natalia Speaks, you're waiting for it. You're, you want to watch it. It's coming out this summer. But before we get into all of that, I, I want to do my little watch list. You know, Beth is a very uh, busy and important person. So she's not like sitting around watching TV when she's a lawyer who is actively saving lives. So I'm going to do my own little watch list. You know, there's so, 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 so much TV that has come out. I personally want to give a shout out to I'm a Virgo on Prime Video. I absolutely love this show. I feel like it is getting lost in the mist of the bear season two with all of its guest stars. But I'm a Virgo just premiered on prime video and it is so great. It just felt so refreshing and unlike anything else I've seen on TV. So if you haven't checked that one out, I don't want to give too much away on it because I will say it is about a very tall man (laughs) who is a Virgo. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. It is an interesting watch if you just jump into it. So, so I think that's another reason people people haven't been discussing it, uh, you know, too much. But it's great stuff. Uh, and then, yes, I, I know I mentioned the Bear season two. It's out. I was lucky enough, blessed to be in the beautiful city of Chicago when the Bear season two came out. As some of you may know, I'm a Chicago girl. Grew up in Northern Illinois. Lived in Chicago for eight years. Family from here. I love Chicago and. As much as I enjoyed the performances and story of the Bear season one, what I took issue with was its portrayal of the city that was often inaccurate, completely made up, uh, and incorrect. So with season two, you know, being in Chicago, people in New York and LA were like, hey, you're in Chicago. That's so cool. Are people doing like the Bear viewing parties? Like it's a huge thing probably, right? And the thing is, uh, you see, the Bear is not a show for people from Chicago, (laughs) People in Chicago truly were like, what is that? What are you talking? No, I don't. Yeah, whatever. You know, the Chicago media people are like, yeah, yeah, we got to watch it. But most people in Chicago are truly like, we don't know what that is. It is an L.A. New York show. It is a show for people on the coast that happens to be set in Chicago. You know, it's not really about the city. It is truly a show that could have been set anywhere that I think most Chicagoans feel happens to be set in Chicago. Uh, But... What I liked about this second season is that they put most of the Chicago stuff to the side. They aren't trying to make it a Chicago show. They're not trying to convince us that Carmi does Malort shots, okay? They're not trying to do all that. They just really focused finally on the characters, uh, particularly the secondary characters like Tina, Marcus. 
we get more of their stories. And that, to me, is what makes season two stronger than the first season. If you watch it as a character study, it is a wonderful, wonderful show. If you watch it as a show about a restaurant in Chicago with a plot that makes sense, I don't know if it's as successful. But as a character study of just like incredible, incredible actors doing very emotional things about their lives, it's great for that. It's wonderful. I love what they did with the Copenhagen episode. And, you know, I, I believe Rami, Rami Youssef, who is a, is a friend of the pod who has been on the show, uh, directed that episode and said that he didn't want to capture uh, just the top five things you could Google in Copenhagen, uh, which made me go, you should let Rami direct the whole show, because why did you just include Chicago as like the top five things people Google? It's really like, oh, Chicago architecture tour. There's the building from the Wilco album. Sears Tower, like that's the whole place. You know, they did get Margie's Candies in there, uh, the one up in Logan Square or the Bucktown location, depending on how you want to draw, draw your your divide there with the, with the Armitage Street. And, you know, uh, yeah, that was cute. That That's my old hood, uh, you know, but it, it still is like there's a specialness to the city that you have to have someone from Chicago in your writer's room to really capture and it is another season that tells me they failed on that front, but they did do a wonderful job crafting a show around these characters, their emotional development, their arcs, the dynamics between them. And at the end of the day, that is what matters to most people, right? This is a show viewed by people all over the country. It does not need to specifically be for Chicago people and make us happy. So fine. You know, I, it, it, again, I'm say if the show was set in Pittsburgh, it would be one of my favorite shows because I wouldn't be annoyed at every turn that they call Kim Fox, Kimberly Fox. They say Kimberly Fox, the like <laughs> the like D.A. for Ch city of Chicago. And it's like, you mean the Cook County District Attorney? Kim, what? Like literally every Chicago was like, what are they? Who are they talking about? And then it's like, oh, right, because. This is a show for people from L.A. who don't know what Cook County is and have to be told City of Chicago. Okay, that's, you know, <laughs> when I started this pod, I think I did like a nine minute rant on all the things the bear got wrong about Chicago. And I think for season two, that that, that about does it. That's all I really have to say is it was stronger because they focused on characters. They put the city to the side. Uh, and I will say a lot of my Chicago friends, I have friends here who, you know, are cooks restaurant chefs have restaurants in the west loop most of them did love that the food this season was far more authentic to chicago food they did actually shoot the restaurant scenes in west loop uh they didn't you know shoot in new york and la and then try to like use b-roll footage you know like first season they accidentally used b-roll footage of the wrong city this time they just came to the actual city and shot how beautiful uh, so a lot of people were happy that they actually did highlight like Chicago actual food, the West Loop. You know, we do have incredible food here. And the first season really made it seem like people in Chicago would be like, risotto? What's that? Uh, so it, it was in that aspect way better. They did a better job with our food. There were no Italian beefs that made me want to like scream. It was fairly, I think, food wise more accurate. So, you know, by season four, maybe they'll realize the show should have been in Avondale and we'll have ourselves a real Chicago show. And maybe they'll actually be a comedy at some point too. You know, that I think that is also the other thing that really bothers me about it is that the bear is just in no way a comedy. Like it is just a drama. Like Rami is a comedy with dramatic aspects. The bear is just a drama that sometimes makes a joke. Like, Succession is more of a comedy than the bear. <laughs> but, hey, you know, you go with comedy, it's easier to win some awards, get nominated in those categories, you know? Who's trying to, who's trying to be in the drama category, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, go up against the big, the big guys. So, hey, the bear season two. I think that's, yeah, that's all I got to say about it. I will say uh, I, I spent most of my time in Chicago actually watching documentaries. Uh, I do want to mention a few since, hey, this is going to be a doc-heavy episode. We got Beth. You know, we're talking Carrie Case and Natalia Grace. So I want to tell you about Take Care of Maya, a documentary I watched on Netflix. Uh, it is not a series. It is a one-off one. You know, it's like an hour, 40 minutes. It's a movie. 
Uh, but it's incredible. And it looks at this girl who was basically kidnapped by All Children's Hospital, John Hopkins, when her family was falsely accused of Munchausen by proxy, making her sick on purpose. And the doctors just refused to believe that this girl actually had the illness her parents said she had. And it just spirals into this just disaster that is so, so sad and will make you want to burn down, uh, you know, all of the American medical industry because why what like it's just truly you watch and you're like oh so they just don't care about parents or they like kids at all like this they don't care about families this is all wild uh, and after you watch that one go watch the battle for justina pelletier which is on peacock and is about the same thing this one is about a 14 year old girl uh who goes to boston children's hospital uh, and they believe her mom is making her sick on purpose. They don't believe the parents when they're like, she has mitochondrial disease. And they end up like basically harming this girl and making it worse. They like the parents don't get custody for 14 months. And it finally comes to an end when an anonymous, like, like anonymous, the group, <laughs> an anonymous, anon, like computer hacker, like hacks the hospital to try to save the girl. And then finally they're like, God, just give her back to her parents. But that one is a documentary series. It is four episodes. It's wonderful. Uh, so I would say watch the two of those because I'm going to be doing a dueling doc segment on the newsletter uh, about those two docs because goodness, did they teach me so much. I am afraid to have children and take them to a hospital now. I want to burn down the medical system. It's just a lot. Also, on a lighter note, and because some of you know that I do consider some reality shows to be documentaries, uh, I've been watching Project Runway, the new all-star season, uh, where Christian Seriano is the host, and I absolutely love it. I don't remember, I don't recognize half of the contestants because I stopped watching Project Runway at season eight, uh, but the people from seasons like one through three, some of my favorites, absolutely remember watching them in like middle school and high school. So hey, to me, that counts as a documentary. I'm seeing where they are in life right now. <laughs> So that that's my little watch list. You know, I've been on tour. I, you know, it's I fall so behind on TV when I'm on tour. And I have some things I'm going to catch up on. I know you're begging me to watch based on a true story. You're begging me to watch all these other things. And I'm going to get to them. Okay, I promise. As soon as I'm back home, I'm locking myself in my apartment. I'm catching up on all the TV. And we're going to get into it. Okay. And yeah. And also before before we head to Beth, Beth cares. You know, recently I, I had Jason Manzukis on and we talked about Paramount Plus and how great they've been doing. He was singing the praises of, of, of Star Trek Prodigy. And I was, you know, absolutely elated about Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies. I, I've not hid my love and obsession over that show. So imagine my surprise when, uh, you know, a few weeks ago they announced that they are canceling Rise of the Pink Ladies and Star Trek Prodigy. And not just canceling them, but completely removing them. Completely removing them from the service. It's like as soon as we said that they were doing something good over there, Paramount Plus was like, okay, let's mess it up. Let's just mess it up. So I just want to give a heartfelt RIP to two amazing shows that deserve better than this. I don't know if you'll still be able to go watch Rise of the Pink Ladies. If it's on Paramount Plus, go watch it before they take it down. Um, I guess they're going to try to ship it, you know, some other places, see if any other spots might be interested. But that's it's just scary. This is the TV world we live in right now. So so just hold on to what you love, because who knows? You know, one app that doesn't remove anything, Discovery Plus. Okay, baby, they are rocking it out with these investigation discovery docs. And my favorite one, The Curious Case of Natalia Grace. We will be getting part two Natalia Speaks this summer. But until then, let's talk to Beth Karras about the ins and outs of this wild, wild documentary. Whew, the Curious Case of Natalia Grace. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you have been following me, listening to the podcast for the past few weeks, you know I'm absolutely obsessed uh, with the new Max docuseries, The Curious Case of Natalia Grace. Uh, If you haven't heard about it, it's about a young girl who gets adopted from Ukraine and ends up with the Barnett family. I'll just start there because we're going to dive deep in with this episode because today I am joined by a veteran legal analysis attorney and court TV correspondent who does an amazing job in the series breaking down Natalie's case and also has done an amazing job breaking down nearly every court TV case I've watched my entire lifetime. Uh, Beth Karras, welcome to TV Club. Thank you for inviting me, Ashley, although I am former Court TV now. I pop up there now yes. and then, but I was there for 19 years, and now I do other stuff. I I am so aware, I have to tell you, my mother and I, huge fans, uh, when I told my mom I was interviewing you, she went, Beth is in our house every single day. Don't mess this up, Ashley. Like, this is Beth. You have to get it right. <laughs> well, I'll make sure you are getting it right. Don't you worry. And say <sighs> hi to you. your mom. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Oh, she's absolutely, I I mean, I've interviewed Gloria Steinem, all these, and she's just like, I don't care about those. Beth, you're interviewing Beth Cares. This matters. (laughs) That's nice to hear. Yes. So the curious case of Natalia Grace, how did you first stumble upon this? What kind of drew your interest to this case? Well, just uh, the one or two line summary of the story is enough to draw me or anyone into it, right? A, A little person is adopted from Ukraine in 2004, 2006 rather, by uh, a family in the United States. And then they unload her two years later to the Barnetts that you mentioned. And the Barnetts are like, wait a minute, we don't know if she's really a child or an adult, okay? That was like, really? You've adopted somebody who might actually be an adult and you think you have a six-year-old child? So that did it for me. But I was brought into the story by the people who were doing the deep dive investigation, the production company, um, because they needed a voice on air to help tell the story and to sort of raise the questions that the viewers are asking. And believe it or not, I was kind of learning the story along with the viewers. I went on the journey too, and they're recording several different times I sat down with them. They recorded my journey Like it's your journey through it, right? So I'm reacting very, very genuinely to stuff that I was learning. Like, what did I just read? Or did you just tell me? So I was, you know, of course, going to jump on the project when I was asked to be a part of it because it's such a fascinating story. The first episode really focuses on Michael Barnett, the father, uh, and his experience and story of this. And watching the first episode, like you said, I was on a journey. That first episode, I was like, well, clearly she's an adult. I'm completely convinced. Oh, my gosh. You know, and I had heard about this when it happened at the time. And just kind of always believed like, oh, yeah, that story from years ago, she was an adult, right? And had no idea that other evidence had come out. Why do you think the myth of Natalia truly being an adult has been so lasting? Why is that what the the mainstream remembers? Because the narrative was controlled by the Barnetts. And Natalia just, she just wasn't getting her story out there properly. Maybe she didn't know how to, she didn't have the tools to. I mean, at the time that she's being interviewed, like some years ago already, she's like just barely um, an adult, if you believe that she was a child at the time the Barnetts got her, right? But regardless of her age, she was not controlling the narrative. She just did not know, I think, how to get her story out. And the Barnetts, they took total control. And they they had, you know, a detective... Um, where they lived, you know, believing that Natalia was an adult. They had a judge re-aging her. They had, you know, at least one doctor who 
was on their side. So they had corroboration for their position. And and that's what the public was learning. It's just so scary to me that that people can focus on one side of the story and not really understand that it's going to take years for Natalia to be in a place where she can speak. And we're getting that this summer. Natalia speaks. So I know there was some pushback saying, you know, people who believed the the first part pays too much attention to Michael. It puts him at the center. Uh, I felt like that was allowing Michael to give himself enough rope to hang himself, kind of. He continues to talk. He continues to tell sort of stories that that go against each other. It's not always the same story. Things change. Uh, how did you feel about Michael's interviews in this documentary? So it was uh, like halfway through the production that I was even told that there was a second set of interviews with Michael because they were happening as I was l- learning the story and being interviewed for the earlier, you know, the, the first time. So there was the 2019 interviews with him. And and then like three years later, he's all of a sudden like saying something very different. Now, there was a gag order at one point, but a lot of Natalia's story could not be told because she's paying attention to the prosecutors. Oh. She's paying attention to the her authorities uh, who are saying, you know, the people on her side who are kind of not representing her, but, you know, handling her, um, her case as a victim. Uh, they're like, yeah, you you know, you don't want to talk. This has to be tried in a court of law, not in a court of public opinion. Michael, however, was talking before and during and right on the eve of trial, right? I mean, we, we yeah. follow him right up through the trial. And uh, he was talking with the understanding that nothing would air until the trial was over. Nothing came out, you know, during the case. So he kind of controlled the narrative even from our perspective to a certain extent. I mean, he was the voice and his son. So they were the Barnett side, yeah. and you know we were waiting for the trial, you know, for Natalia side. And Natalia testifies, but there's no camera, right? And the only what we were able to do was get as much documentation as possible to support one side or the other. But the trial was really important evidence that was going to be introduced into the trial because HIPAA laws would prevent us from getting medical records unless Natalia allowed it or if they were introduced into evidence and not under seal or something, right? So there's really limited information that we could find through public records requests unless one side or the other gave us the records and consented to it. So, you know, you you can't assume that all the information that's out there is available, to investigative journalists, yeah. but a lot more is available now, Ashley. Okay. I just want to say a lot yes. more is available <laughs> now that Michael's trial is over and Christine's charges have been dismissed. And that information is being analyzed right now. Yeah. And I think that's what I really want to focus on next. I think for me as an outside, like going through this journey, I was like, they have the birth certificate. They have the mom. What else is the debate here? Why can't they call her a child in court? Why can't this be brought up? Uh, we go through this whole trial where we see, you know, Michael's lawyers, Christine's lawyers, not uh, finding ways to not call her a child, to say, oh, your 22-year-old daughter, you know, make sure you refer to her this way. And we see even a doctor just kind of lose his mind and going, why can't we tell the truth? She's a child. Can you kind of explain the the breakdown of how that happened? Because I think so many viewers just couldn't understand how that could happen in a court of law. Well, I will explain it, but I will tell you, bottom line is it was a judge's decision on what evidence was admissible or not. And the judge said, I'm not allowing the age issue to be relitigated. It's been handled before, not in Tippecanoe County, Indiana, where the trial took place, but in a different county, I think it's Hamilton County, which is where the reaging took place. Now, the reaging took place in 2012, right around the time of the creamery incident when the Barnett say that Natalia tried to pull Christine into an electric fence. That all yes. gets explained in one of the episodes. Fence wasn't even on. And um, yeah. <laughs> I think we we get Michael's very dramatic retelling of it. And then they actually interview one of the the EMTs who was there. And he's just like, none of yeah, that. Yeah, it wasn't right. Exactly. It was the mother, Christine, who was the most dramatic person. So Natalia gets hospitalized. As it turns out, she's hospitalized for dehydration. We learned that too. Like she wasn't feeling well. She wasn't like, she was dehydrated. Like she wasn't getting enough water, food, whatever. And and so she's hospitalized and they go in with an emergency petition within a few weeks. Natalia has no idea, right? 
presumably, and they they get her reaged. Okay, so that happens in 2012, the summer of 2012. Fast forward a few years, and soon after that, they dump her in her own apartment. They're like, you're an adult now, you're going to live right. on your own. First one apartment in 2012, and that they don't um, re-up her lease, they don't re-offer her a renewal, so they move her to Lafayette yeah. on a narrow way, what um, Christine calls a white trash community, real nice. Yes. Um, really got the neighborhood yeah. upset. That really made the town yeah. angry. <laughs> Uh, and so depending on who you believe, she's either nine or 10 at that point, or, you know, 14 years older. Natalia actually did go into court a, like three, four years after, I, I don't remember the timeline exactly, after the reaging to try to get it undone and to wow. have more of a full-blown hearing on her true age. It turned into basically a rubber stamp of what the first judge did. The second judge said, you know, I find you're an adult. One of those judges said to her, you better start acting like one. So she did try to get it undone, and it got reaffirmed. So now, fast forward to the trial in 2023, 2022, Michael's trial, and um, that judge is like, look, it's already been determined by two judges in a different county, but in the state of Indiana. I'm not undoing it. I'm not going to relitigate it. And it really tied the hands of the prosecution. They, I mean, half the charges were for child neglect. The other half were yeah. for neglect and abandonment of a dependent person, which includes a person with a disability, a dependency. I mean, a child is a dependent too, right? But that those separate charges, yeah. though, you know, the child charges had to get dismissed. And what survived were the neglect and abandonment of a dependent person. And jurors you know, felt there was reasonable doubt, I think. I mean, I haven't talked to the, any jurors, but probably because she did actually survive on her own. So how dependent was she? And, and I think that was, that that's sort of people's biggest uh, gotcha on Natalia is if she really was a child, how did she manage to live alone all those years? And, you know, she was okay. How'd she manage to feed herself? Uh, and I thought the documentary did a great job of outlining how she was struggling, how neighbors saw her struggling to eat, that she didn't have food, that she wasn't doing her laundry, that, you know, she wasn't washing her hair. It was clear she couldn't take care of basic things that an adult would need to do. So I kind of was curious why Natalia's actions weren't brought into the case, why people weren't allowed to say it's clear she doesn't know how to use an oven or a stove. It's clear, you know, that she has this level of like learning ability uh, or look at her writing. It's clearly a child's so, writing. So, I mean, that's a really good question, Ashley. And I don't have the trial transcript, so I can't say that that wasn't because she did testify. But the bottom line is she still was able to get food from a little corner store. Granted, it was processed and maybe needed to be heated up, yeah. but she was still able to feed herself. The Barnetts, you know, by then, were, this is 2013, were living in Canada. So it's not like they were checking in on her physically, but they, you know, she was getting some supplemental security income. But it was only a few months at that second apartment before the man's family that lived in the neighborhood yeah. across the street, I think, saw, like, what is this child? They thought, child doing, like, who, like, who, you know, who is she? And they took her in yeah. like very, very quickly. So she didn't have to live for long in the Tippecanoe County apartment. And then they're the ones who really, I mean, they, they gave her a stable home and they're the ones who got her, you know, the pro proper attention on the case and the authorities like, yeah. started looking at it and they're like, what is going on here? And it seems in the the footage we see of Natalia with them, she does seem better taken care of, happier, more put together. I think a lot of people still to this day say Natalia is a scammer. She scammed the Barnetts. She just wanted to live off of them forever, uh, which to me doesn't make sense because if they bought her an apartment... <laughs> didn't check in with her for a year, wouldn't that have been the successful scam? Like, wouldn't she have just stayed in the apartment and been great right. and not brought attention to herself? Right. Uh, why do you think people want to believe she's a scammer? Well, you know, I don't know how to answer that, Ashley. People have their own opinions. I mean, there are people who are just always going to see her through that prism, that she was an adult masquerading as a child. Uh, 
you can just say, oh, oh, there's a lot of corruption or there was a lot of corruption in Ukraine. So those aren't accurate records. They were doctored. The records were doctored. I mean, there are people who believe that that birth certificate yeah. that says she was born September 4, 2003, isn't that accurate um, document. Um, and so, you know, people are going to believe what they want to believe. But when you look at the evidence, it certainly seems to point in the direction that, that she's a child. But you know what? I mean, more will come to light and we'll see if that is wrong, you know, that she really was uh, born much before 2003. For me, I think the moment that that, you know, on this journey, like you said, I, I was on Michael's side, then I go flip flop. And finally, I think when they brought in Anna Gava, Natalia's mom, and they did the T DNA test and it was very clear, like in order for Natalia to be born in 1985, I believe her mom would have had to be. Yeah, 10 years old, which was impossible. Uh, and so I was curious, is there a way that Anna would have to come to an American court or something that could be done if Natalia was to be re-aged? Could they bring her well, in? Well, uh, I think that presents a lot of logistical problems right now just because of the war in Ukraine. But I don't know that they would have to do that. Um, I suppose they could. It would be expensive um, and um, perhaps dangerous just because of the war. Um, but I think, you know, yeah. with her, she was on Zoom uh, for the second interview, even though they, because of rolling blackouts, you know, it didn't last. They did get her DNA. There are records that were obtained before the war from, um, by the prosecutor and the detectives who went there. I don't think we've seen all of them. So I, I think that will probably be enough if the court, you know, takes notice that these are official records and certified. And what reason would her mom have to lie about this? You know, that's my thing is why, what reason would Anna have to lie about the age of this child? Right. I mean, she said very spontaneously to her, I think it was to her twin, um, I've been dealing with this for 17 years. And that was in yeah. 2020 that she said it. Remember, I say that in the, in, in the uh, series, I say, well, do the math. You know, if that, if that, she made that yeah. statement in 2020 and she's been dealing with it for 17 years, then Natalia was born in 2003, right? Three. Which is what Natalia yeah. had said. That's what the birth certificate says. So um, I don't, yeah. I, I, I don't know why her mother would want to lie unless she was like paid exactly. off. I mean, I guess a cynic could say, oh, she got a lot of money, but who's paying her and for what? Yeah. For what? You know, I, it doesn't seem like the Barnett's have deep pockets like that so and they weren't the first family you know, to get and they they didn't adopt natalia from ukraine the, yeah the Sikonis did Sikonis out of new hampshire went, went to new hampshire they're the ones who adopted her and that was another question so this other family adopts her and the barnett's their story of how they get natalia seems a little unclear. And I know recently uh, the adoption agency that Michael said, like hit them, called them and said, hey, take this child, put out a statement saying what Michael said is a lie. <laughs> uh, we're going to, you know, come, we're going to charge him for lying. That isn't true. Uh, we did not work with them on their adoption. Is this typical, these sort of unchecked American adoptions? It seems like the family that had her before was just going down a list of names to get rid of her. So I would be speculating um, if I were to give a, like a, a, like an answer as though I know what I'm talking about. I can only say that this does not seem to be common. Uh, closed adoptions do occur. Black market, you know, selling of babies does occur. I'm not saying that that's what this is. But this whole narrative in the series was pretty much, you know, the Barnett side was Michael's, right? It, it was Michael yeah. saying it. There was not any uh, cooperation from the adoption agency, is, is my understanding. I didn't call them, but I believe that there was an attempt to reach them, and there was like, yeah, no, no, no comment. But now that this is out there and his side is out there, they see, okay, we got to respond. Like, this isn't true. So, I mean, he said we had 24 hours to get there before Natalia was going to be put in foster care, and we didn't want that to happen. So we just got on a plane. The whole family, the three boys, mom and dad, and... Um, you know, he's, he goes through a very detailed description of that day. And it was one of the happiest days of his life when this little girl comes running in, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy. Um, and, yeah. you know, that's just the beginning of their journey. <laughs> that just the beginning. Uh...
you like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I would like to talk about the Christine of it all. <laughs> uh, Christine is a huge figure in this documentary, even though she is not in it, uh, declined to comment. To me, what we see of her is is so villainous almost that she just seems kind of like a caricature. She's so evil. And I know most of it is Michael, you know, giving us his side. So of course he's going to try to make her seem, you know, extra evil. Uh, But I know she ran a daycare center prior to having Natalia. And I was curious if producers sought to see if, if there were any issues with her daycare, if any, you know, the children she had watched had ever had issues or was she just considered like a, a wonderful daycare provider and everybody loved her? So I would have to ask them that answer that, but I think it's probably the latter. I, I think it was very successful. Um, and it was for special needs children. Um, their oldest son, Jacob, who is just a super genius, um, was, uh, is also on the spectrum. And so it was for children like that, which was great. She converted her garage and I really applaud that, that work that she did. Um, but there was another side to her, which Michael portrayed, not in his first interview in 2019. Yeah. It was all on Natalia in that first interview. And then, yeah, in 2019, it's all, well, Christine has lupus. She's so weak. She could barely even move Natalia. And then later it's, oh, she was so strong. She could pin Natalia down and punch her to the ground as he shows us very right. dramatically. Right. So like, I, I was really scratching my head with his second interview saying, what? Like, I, I don't want to believe you kind of lost your credibility here because I, you're really telling two different stories. I mean, you know, there's a part of me that, that thinks that maybe he was also, you know, manipulated or controlled by her, by Christine, you know? Um, yeah. It doesn't excuse his behavior. It might explain some of his behavior, but I think she was kind of the stronger force in the household. Uh, and and we kind of get an idea of that with Jacob and his interview. There's a moment in, I believe, episode four where they're asking Jacob to speak on the abuse he saw Natalia face. And he doesn't want to talk about it. He says, I need a moment. He steps away, doesn't realize his microphone is on. Uh, and we get to hear him talking to his dad about someone being thrown down the stairs, how he's afraid to say things because he doesn't want to get in trouble or have his mom face new charges. I couldn't believe what we were hearing that, you know, it was kind of like the jinx moment of the documentary for me where you're like, okay, things aren't what they seem. I was trusting Jacob and his father. Now I see things aren't right. Uh, What did you feel when you saw that moment for the first time? So I know a lot of people out there think that this was staged, but it was not. (laughs) Okay, this was genuine. It happened and it was not staged. I thought, oh, my God, like they actually are colluding and deciding what they're going to tell the producers and then what they're going to hold back. So, you know, again, it's an example of the the two Barnett family members controlling the narrative of what, you know, we what we learn as viewers. But there's going to be more in the next round. Yeah. To see how much of that is corroborated or refuted. Right. And I mean, everyone who watches this documentary says we need a part two. We need more this. You know, you end on so many questions, even though it does feel like, oh, but but it's she's clear. She's clearly a child. What what is the issue? 
but when I saw that Christine's charges had been dropped, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, could you kind of explain the decision to drop those charges? So I believe it's because the evidence would be similar in a trial against Christine, with the exception of Michael. Michael was subpoenaed to testify. Since he had been acquitted, he didn't have a Fifth Amendment right against self incrimination. He could have been forced to testify against her. And even though there is a marital privilege that would have prevented maybe some of their communications, it wouldn't have prevented any communications that went to the crimes, right? If the crime was afoot, it can be an exception. Um, But they may have just felt, you know, rolling the dice was just not worth judicial, you know, the judicial resources and time. Uh, And that it's essentially the same case. And maybe a jury that had acquitted Michael might not have found him all that credible. And, you know, in Christine's trial, may, they may have felt that he was just somebody who was going to point the finger at her be, to save his own skin. Right. And he was just going to embellish. Right. And so he wasn't going to be as credible a witness for the prosecution. So I think they just probably felt they didn't have enough proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Michael's trial was a test for that. Yeah. They tried them separately, I suspect, because. It's the same evidence. It could have been tried together. But Michael has so many statements against Christine that they needed to sever the trials and let him have his own his own trial. And then she'd have her own and he'd testify against her. Right. And and after Michael's trial, you know, he's found not guilty. He comes running or <laughs> crying and, and walking out of the courtroom saying, oh, they could tell immediately. They knew I was so innocent. Oh, they knew that I had nothing to do with this. They didn't need any time to decide I was innocent. Uh, and then one of the jurors is interviewed and is basically like, we all thought he was guilty. We just based on on the on what we could judge on, on based on the perimeters we were given, we couldn't say guilty, but we all thought he was guilty. Uh, how often do you see that happening? It just seems so frustrating to me that that a jury can just literally believe someone is guilty and is just hamstrung and can do nothing about it. And this person gets to walk away thinking, I'm so innocent. So I've seen it a few times in in cases like I tried or um, cases I covered, you know, at at Court TV. I've talked to jurors. They're like, yeah, we all thought he did it. There just wasn't proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's frustrating, but also I like knowing that the system works. Like we, 12 jurors are told, you better all believe every element of the crime or crimes have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt in order to convict. And we want the system to work. And the, you know, and so it worked in Michael's case. They're like, yeah, we thought he was guilty, but there just wasn't enough evidence. It would have been a different verdict if the jurors knew about the reagent, if the jurors could have seen the evidence the prosecution had that she was actually a child. They didn't get that. So, um, you know, this is the way the system is supposed to work. It's frustrating, but... It's our, it's like, but Beth, it's so frustrating. What are we supposed to do? <laughs> you know, I think so many of us, when that documentary ended and you see that the charges were dropped against, against Christine, you just want to scream. I just immediately was like, how do I fight for Natalia? What can I do to get her justice? I mean, her story is so just for me, a a crossroads of sort of everything that's wrong with this country, how we fail to help people who are dependents and in need, how we fail children. And it's just everything layered on top. And I just, I'm going, I just, what do we do? (laughs) How do you deal with those frustrations and, and show support or try to reform this kind of legal system? So, I mean, you're asking me a loaded (laughs) question, Ashley. I don't know how I can answer that. There are ways you can help Natalia. You can just work, you can just sort of Google her name and you can find ways that you might want to reach out and help her or the man's family. But, um, uh, but as far as the system is concerned, I'm sure the judge who reaged her uh, well, I'm not saying, I can't say I'm sure, but I wonder if the judge who reaged her is now questioning yeah. uh, the the decision. And also the second judge who looked at it, uh, given the blowback um, from the series and information that I suspect is going to come out, and some is already dribbling out there, uh, that she may really have been a child. You know, And, and to take an eight-year-old and tell an eight-year-old you're 22 is really... Or maybe she was 10 years old. Yeah. Tell a 10-year-old you're 22. I mean, think about 10-year-old children you know. I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah. You're going to put... You're going to tell them you got to go live on your own now? And you have a, a physical disability yeah. on top of it and need surgeries? 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> she needed surgeries for her feet. You yeah. Know, she needed surgeries on her feet and her hips. And it, it was so clear when they are showing. I, I also love how the documentary gives us this sort of inside look at how defense attorneys work. I mean, Michael's lawyers, uh, some of that footage, I was just like, I they're so evil. <laughs> they're calling her names. There's like a video of her clearly struggling to move a trash can. And you can tell she's like wobbling, uh, maybe like something hurts. And his lawyer is just like, Psh, that looks like a grown up moving a trash can. And just you can tell they're trying to grasp at anything they can. And I know that's their job as defense attorneys. How does it feel to watch that? You know, you know, you're a lawyer, you know, that's the game. But to see it just yeah. so blatant. I'm so jaded by advocacy in the courtroom. I mean, I was an advocate for the state, for the prosecution. And I, I, I you know, I know what defense attorneys do. And sometimes, you know, win or loss comes. Uh, because of the great advocacy of one side or the other, because they could just take that evidence and just convince you the same evidence that uh, the other side's arguing, they can convince you that one side is right. But yeah, I mean, it, it's frustrating. That trash can video you're talking about, I mean, that trash can's twice her height, right? And she's really trying to pull it along and, you know, clearly, and she's in pain. I mean, this was a, 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 a person, regardless of age, was in pain because of her hips and her feet. Um, I mean, her, she was in pain on the day of the creamery incident. And that's what she said yeah. when she talked to the forensic uh, interviewer who was uh, in the series. She, 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 her feet hurt. So she sat down on the grass because she's in pain. I mean, you, they should have had a wheelchair for her. Yeah. She's in a wheelchair today. Today, yeah. And it just, it, it seems like no one at any point in her life thought about what sort of trauma or pain Natalia might have been in. I know that she goes to a mental institution for a bit and the the nurses in the institution say that she's highly sexual, that they felt she was an adult. Uh, and others have said, you know, that is a sign of, of child sexual uh, abuse. You know, that can be that that someone else has been harming her. Uh, did you feel that that could have been brought up more in the documentary or will we see more of that when Natalia speaks? I think we're going to see more of that, I suspect. I don't know that there was more that could have been done in the documentary series that, that's out now. But I do, I remember the prosecutor, Jackie Starbuck, tweeting during the series when this was, because I was watching it the first time it aired, right? And I'm following the Twitter feed. And Jackie Starbuck, she goes, who are these people? Who are these nurses? Who are these hospital yeah. staff? They're like the the and Jackie wrote this. She said the medical records don't support what they're saying. Wow. The records, the notes. She said don't support what these people are saying. Who are these people? Because their names weren't. Yeah, used. their names. They didn't used. want to be identified. No, I'm sure they were really there. I'm sure they were telling the truth from their own experience. But Jackie Starbuck was the prosecutor was a little confused because she said this is not in the notes. Oh my God, that is that's good info, listeners. I I had no idea that that she had come out and said that. That's wow. Oh, she says a lot. She responds to the series throughout. She she's no longer a prosecutor. Yeah. Uh, she left after Christine's case was dismissed. I don't know the circumstances of it, but. Um, she's not at that office, I should say, but, um, and she didn't cooperate, you know, at the time because, you know, she's getting ready for trial. So she responds to questions people were raising during the series. So take a look. Wow. I also want to get into the, uh, before we shift gears a little bit, I want to get into the final sort of revelation of this documentary series, uh, where we find that Christine had tried to set Natalia up on a date with a man she had been sort of flirting with on Facebook. Uh, and he sort of seems to allude to the fact that perhaps there was a level of abuse or something between Michael and Natalia. Uh, that's sort of our big cliffhanger. What do you think that scene or moment is sort of speaking to? So I've not seen what Freddie Gill is the person you're talking about. He's a little person also. I've not seen what he actually said. I wasn't made privy to that. So I was kind of left with the same impression you have. Um, but I, I don't know that, that's, that that actually really happened. It's just Freddie was repeating what Christine told him. Yeah. And, you know, take that for what it's worth. You know, is Christine telling him a tru the truth or is she telling him something to get him to maybe want to get a little, you know, piece of the action too? Yeah. 
you know, it was it was clear she had a lot of lies to tell. <laughs> so, you know, it, and it seems to me that that Michael's response at the end is when we really sort of see this this rising violence in him. You know, there's the moment with the baseball bat where we see him like gripping that baseball bat. And then when they give him the laptop and they're like, this might make you angry. He's just like, what if I break your laptop? What if I throw it? And you see how sort of out of his control of his emotions he can be. Have you seen that a lot in in other documentaries you've worked on or just other uh, interviews with uh, people who are trying to defend themselves? Because to me, it just seemed like he was so defensive. He was so upset and just angry. Yeah, I mean, he's been through a lot in his life, right? I mean, his 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 oldest son talks to him, but not his two youngest. And he just, you know, he, he's been through a lot. He had a lot of things materially. And then, you know, he went down. He had nothing, 37 cents in the bank, remember? But he always manages to have a nice car. <laughs> but to answer your question about if I've seen anything like that before, I mean, I've seen people walk away from an interview, like just get upset about something, but not acting out physically. Yeah. So, you know, or threatening something physical. I've just seen people get disgusted and walk away. Yeah. You know, I just thought like he should just walk in, but it would always be this interesting response of like the physical trying to stay in it and address it. And just an odd energy for the Barnett sort of all over the place. I just can't imagine what it was like being in that household because while while Natalia was living with them and from their perspective, terrorizing them, 60 Minutes is in the house doing um, a story on Jacob, right? I mean, there is that 60 Minutes piece that they did, I don't know, 2010, 11. And there's a shot of the, uh, sort of a wide shot of the family at a table and you do see little Natalia at the table. Um, and Christine wrote a book or she, she had a ghostwriter, but she, she wrote a book called spark spark or something. And, you know, she homeschooled her kids and, um, you know, she's offering advice for homeschooling, um, children. And I know she credits herself with some of Jacob's success. I think he was just, he's just a genius. But, um, in that book, which is about their family, there's, you know, no mention, I understand of, of Natalia. So, like, they didn't really make her a family member, it seems, yeah. right? But maybe they were alienated very early on by, you know, her behavioral problem. I think she did have behavioral problems, Yeah, for sure. absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think we, we hear she was bounced around between something like 10 houses before she ends up with the Barnetts, which, you know, even if she's two years older than you think, that's still very traumatic. That's something that's it is a condition you would have to consider when you're taking that kid in. And it seems like the Barnetts never stop to consider, hey, is this a girl who is dealing with trauma? Does she need a therapist? They just jumped right to she's lying about her age. Uh, And I think there's a part in the documentary where you say the only real reason they had to suspect her age was that she had pubic hair. Like at the end, when you look at it, that's the only evidence they had, which isn't particularly strong evidence. There's, you know, prepubescent puberty. There's all sorts of reasons. Yeah, precocious, yeah, right, precocious, precocious puberty. puberty, they call it. I don't I don't know the explanation for that, by the way. I mean, that's pretty young, six years old for it. But there are cases, eight, nine years old. Yeah. And I know her current family says, like, uh, Christine said that, that Natalia had a period. Her current family says she's never had one. It, there's just so much all over. There's There's conflicting opinions. I love this documentary for clearing so much of it up. And I can't wait for Natalia Speaks cannot wait for Natalia Speaks (laughs) to get the rest of the information. I love this new sort of wave of true crime that's looking at popular stories that were so misunderstood, because I think that can be helpful. That is changing opinions and educating people. Uh, Whereas I think a lot of true crime sometimes recently has just been oh, well, we got Casey Anthony, so here's her side of things. <laughs> you know, let's let's give her a documentary. Yeah. How do you sort of feel about uh, the current true crime landscape and this sort of conflicting desire to shed a light on stories that people don't know the truth about, but also the dangers of giving people who maybe shouldn't have a platform a platform? So, of course, the subset of this uh, genre you're talking about for me is wrongful convictions. Yeah. I mean, that's they've, they've been around and the attempt to tell those stories for a long time. And that is telling the, a story that hasn't been told. It's like 
there's new evidence or this is what was suppressed at the at the trial and jurors didn't hear and and there to, I don't think there's enough attention on wrongful convictions and and we do have unfortunately uh, enough of them you know out there I like to think that today with forensic science where it is that it, it's happening less and less often but uh, there were plenty of wrongful convictions pre-DNA and forensic science as we know it today. Um, so that those stories are always trying to show the other side and, and the truth, right? But I do, um, you know, but in terms of stories like, say, Natalia's, I do, uh, I, I love this new uh, area because it's a new way of sort of getting into a story and also sort of peeling back some, uh, some of the layers and seeing, like, where things went wrong or where things were misunderstood. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of them out there. Um, I don't know that there are a lot of Natalia type yeah. stories out there. I, I, hope, yeah, not. I hope not. I yeah. hope not. I think Natalia is <laughs> a, a one of a kind. <laughs> pretty, pretty unique. Um, but there are plenty of stories that need to be told uh, and deserve to be told. And so I hope we find a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, did you watch the Casey Anthony Peacock documentary? I have not watched Casey speak. I know that case so well. <laughs> yeah. I just have not watched her interview yet because I just I just can't bring myself to do it. But I will. I kind I'll of watch it eventually. I kind of so I kind of wondered if there may be some trials that just keep getting brought up over and over again that you've covered that you're like, I'm yes. gonna sick of it. Okay, I've heard enough about Scott Peterson. <laughs> I don't get sick of Scott Peterson. I don't uh, because. Um, I know I don't really opine much, but I, I do think that, look, I am a big supporter of Innocence Projects, the Innocence yeah. Network all over the country. And, and I, and I, you know, anyone who is innocent and is, is in prison for a day is like, we should lose sleep over yeah. that. I mean, that's an injustice, but he's not one of them. That's all. That's all <laughs> I'll say. Okay. He's not one of them. Okay? Yeah. I, you know, who killed Lacey Peterson, the documentary, it, points different fingers and was a little convincing. And I told my mom, I don't know, maybe I think someone else. And she was like, no, he did it. <laughs> the A&E documentary? Uh, yeah, the A&E documentary. Told, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I made a list of all the errors in that. I made a list with uh, a, a, a Modesto B reporter. He and I covered it. We're like, oh my God, we need to do a podcast and just refute oh my all of these things. But we never did it. You have but, to uh, do that. I know so many people who have been convinced by that documentary that he's innocent. No. <laughs> No, that was told from the perspective of uh, Scott's sister-in-law, yeah. who was in law school at the time, and she's got this whole like timeline thing going on. And no, please, there were so many errors. Uh, okay, see, in my you know, from based on my knowledge of the case, and I mean, uh, was at the trial. That's, yeah, that's what my mom said. I was like, I don't know, mom, this doc, and she was like, No, Beth told me he did it. Beth did her work. Yeah, she, I, she knows. <laughs> Uh, Beth, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, truly, I, I'm such a fan of your work. I, like my mom said, you've been in our house every day. Like, <laughs> I feel like I, I grew up watching you. You taught me how to think critically about things, to ask questions that are tough, you know, and not to be afraid to speak up and to say, hey, I think this is the truth. I think, you know, we need to question this. So thank you so much. I, this documentary particularly blew my mind. I am yelling at everyone to watch The Curious Case of Natalia Grace. Uh, is there anything else you're working on that you want to let us know about? I have a podcast coming out in the fall. Yes through the anonymous content and iHeartRadio. So I'm working on that right now. I'm co-hosting it. But I'm always looking for, for stories also, just like you, yes. you know. Um, and I'm, I'm looking for stories that are impactful, you know, where telling, telling it can make a difference in someone's lives or in many people's lives or in the system. Yeah. Which is what I think The Curious Case of Natalia Grace does. It's making us look at the system from adoptions, international adoptions, U.S. adoptions to re-aging yeah. the criminal justice system and why this, you know, case ended up the way it did in the courts. Exactly. Uh, and where can people follow you to, to get those announcements? So um, I just, uh, you can find me using the common spelling of my name, Beth Karras, on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram. I think I put a number one next to uh, Beth Karras one on Instagram. I never use TikTok, yeah. but I have an account. <laughs> Same. Um, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not very good with social media. I got to be better, especially if people want to hear from me. I better. We want to be hear better. from you, Beth. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
we want to hear from you. We want all of your thoughts on everything that's happening with every legal case all the time. <laughs> well, you were a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. you know, so congratulations to you. And thank you for inviting oh, me. Oh my gosh. My mom is going to be so happy you said that. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And the Curious Case of Natalia Grace, all episodes are now available on Max. Uh, and this summer, we will see Natalia Speaks Part 2. TV I say with Ashley Ray another episode another episode TV I say with Ashley Ray is an Earwolf production made by me Ashley Ray Harris it's engineered by Abby Aguilar produced by Scott Sani executive produced by Amelia Chapelo and our original theme song is by Rafia it means so much to me if you go rate review subscribe follow TV I say let us know what you think and tell your friends share with your golden girls tell your boys if you love my TV recommendations, let everyone you know know. For special TV club members, join my Patreon. And you can also find my full archive ad-free episodes of TV I Say over on Stitcher Premium. Use promo code TV I Say, all one word, for a one-month free trial at stitcher.com slash premium. Hi there, this is Mary Holland. You may know me from Happiest Season or Veep or the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. Or you may know me as Janice Cramps. Huh? I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, 15 years old. Comedy Bang Bang is about to get its driver's permit. I'm so excited for it. And I'm, you know, really grateful because Comedy Bang Bang has brought me so much joy as a listener and a performer. And I'm just very grateful for this community that we have in Comedy Bang Bang. You can hear me and a lot lot of other very funny people on Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Tune in. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang.